Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Nausicaa Renner, Washington editor for The Intercept. With the base pick, the wrong site, with the wrong unit, get the wrong time. Last week, more than 30,000 healthcare workers working for Kaiser Permanente provided a 10-day notice to the company that on November 15th, they would go on strike. More than 90% of Kaiser Permanente's U.S. workforce opted to authorize a strike, which could be the largest in the country so far this year. Last month, union members voted 96% in favor of striking. Nearly 2,000 Kaiser Permanente workers here in Hawaii could be going on strike soon. Unless something changes, 3,400 Kaiser workers from Oregon and Washington will walk off the job, along with workers from five other states. The plan for workers to strike comes after months of failed negotiations between healthcare worker unions and Kaiser, the national nonprofit hospital behemoth. And the weekend before they announced the strike, union workers marched in Southern California. Brothers and sisters, let's go forward and win. The main point of contention during contract negotiations is a proposal by Kaiser to establish a two-tier wage system. What this means is future Kaiser workers will be paid less than current workers. The union is also demanding a 4% permanent increase in wages, while the company is only proposing 2%. In a statement to The Intercept, Kaiser emphasized its appreciation for its essential workers during the pandemic and outlined a number of temporary benefits it had provided them. An updated proposal from Kaiser to workers still includes a second tier with a significant pay cut. Well, we don't want a two-tier system, and they seem to be holding fast on that two-tier system with a reduction in pay and benefits for new employees that would be coming, which would ultimately divide us and that's an old union-busting technique of dividing and conquering. That's Kimberly Mullen, a registered nurse with Kaiser Permanente in California. The challenge with the two-tier system is when you have people doing the same work for considerably different pay, it builds animosity towards 
union member against union member. It causes division and sometimes it will affect care of patients with the animosity and I don't want to take care of that or I don't want to do that why why are they getting this assignment why am I getting that assignment they get paid more than I do why don't they do this or that it could cause some kind of internal strife among the union members so brothers and sisters this is not a company in financial crisis so why has Kaiser acted like this when it thrived, it thrived during the pandemic. Because of you working people, union people, they made money during the pandemic. Why? Because you go in every day, you take care of patients, you risk your own health and safety to do your job. Workers at the rally told The Intercept that in the past year and a half, they've worked long, difficult hours because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It has been scary. It has been challenging. I've been afraid of taking something home to my daughter. We have changes in PPE requirements. We have changes in rules every day. It's been scary and it's been emotional. Um, Taking care of patients who have COVID and being their only support system, not letting anyone else in. You cry with them behind a mask and goggles and PPE and full gear. You hold their hand with a gloved hand and you know some distance, still being afraid, but you need to be there emotionally for your patients that are dying um, and suffering because we don't allow their support system in. Um, it's, uh, it's been very emotional is what I'll say. Um, and uh, despite all of that, we come to work and we endanger ourselves, and we've endangered our families and our loved ones just so we can take care of the community. And um, to be like offered something that would ultimately divide us and knock us down, it's quite insulting. And it's like, um, while we're saving the world, they're planning our demise and planning to divide and conquer us while all we were trying to do was save the world through this pandemic. Make no mistake about it. Each and every one of you are indeed heroic. And you should be treated like heroes. You should be compensated and respected like the heroes that you are. You know, all across the country, healthcare professionals are overworked under-respected and struggling, struggling to continue in a profession that they love. But with the new contract negotiations, they feel Kaiser is not treating them like heroes or like essential workers. During that entire time, they, they would tell us, okay, you're, you're a hero, you know, thank you so much for giving and whatnot. That's Doug Wong, a physician assistant. He told us he would sometimes work 15 or 16 hour days at the peak of the pandemic. When you get home and your kids say something like, you know, are you going to be home tomorrow? You feel like you are giving what a part of yourself and, you're, and you feel like you're giving everything that you, you can to the community as a whole. And then to be told later on, hey, thanks, but we're not going to respect the same people who are coming in after you who are going to be giving the same thing. In the past year, Wong said he mostly worked in mental health care. Over the course of the pandemic, you, you see all sorts of things. And um, I, I 
spoke to people who had lost seven family members, direct family members, uh, mother, father, husband, and aunt uncle's cousins, um, all in the course of two months. And doing this over and over and over again, you feel like you're giving, you feel like you're giving to the community. And you hope that that is respected by your employer. You hope that they see what you give. And then it comes to time to take a look at your contract and whatnot, and they say, hey, hey, thanks, but no. Anger against employers and executives seems to be a common thread among many essential workers who basically kept society running over the past 18 months. In October, hospital workers in Buffalo, New York, went on strike. This month, teachers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, began to strike. Coal miners from Alabama have been striking for months. And last week, sanitation workers in New Orleans announced a strike. Frustrated Frito-Lay workers in Topeka continue to strike for higher wages and better working conditions. Right now, take a look. Local carpenters are on strike around our area, leaving some big construction sites empty. When they pick it, they are doing so for better pay this morning. Production of Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Corn Flakes hangs in the balance tonight after workers at all of the Kellogg Company's U.S. cereal plants walked off the job this week. There is a new militant spirit in the American workforce. Workers want more, and they're willing to strike to get it. So far this year, we've seen almost 300 strikes, according to a database from Cornell University. That's hundreds of thousands of workers refusing to labor, showing executives where the real power lies. And it's pretty clear why anger is rising among workers. According to the Economic Policy Institute, CEO earnings rose by nearly 19% during 2020. Profits soared off the backs of workers. Amazon now at $1 trillion. Bezos' net worth is now close to $170 billion. Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, is officially the richest person ever, with a net worth of $271.3 billion. The combined wealth of the 657 billionaires in the country grew more than $1.3 trillion, nearly 45% since the pandemic began. So with such high earnings, Cutting wages, benefits, and staff feels like a slap in the face. We're being expected to do more with less. They could put any number in front of whatever percent raise they want to give us. But if they continue to try and divide us in the future by offering this two-tier system, we will never take that. They were calling us heroes. They were thanking us on a daily basis. And then as we enter this process, this is, this is what you call thank you? That's Nick Eng, a registered nurse, Hannah Winchester, a home health physical therapist, and Serena Rower, also a registered nurse. I think that we are one of many groups across the country, across the world, that is finding their voice and saying that we must have input and we must have control over our workplace. And you can no longer use us as your way to make money without regard for our safety, without regard for our feelings, without regard for us as humans. Uh, and I think that's how it's so incredible that we're unified across so many different areas and arenas is that we all have one common theme and that's that we're done. We, we know that we are the ones that must take that control back and we must protect ourselves. You've got to continue to raise your voices as they are doing all, workers are doing all across this country. 
in the broader context of workers going on strike, I, I'd say our fight is right up there with the fight of, you know, the workers at Nabisco, Kellogg's, John Deere, uh, IATSE workers, miners, and, and other healthcare workers, even, you know, teachers uh, of recent years. Um, we may work in different industries, but the stories are, when, when people tell their stories, they're all very similar. People who control the capital of the companies, most if not all of whom make seven, eight, maybe even sometimes nine fig, like, figure salaries, they're telling their workers that they get too much, that the, uh, the, the wages and the benefits of the workers is too expensive, uh, and it's, it's affecting the, the long-term success of the company. <sighs> and funny enough, those people never suggest that they should be the ones taking a pay cut for the good of the company, you know? <laughs> Although there have been other points in history when the labor movement was much more cohesive and militant, the recent wave of strikes and worker actions throughout the country is very significant. Over the course of nearly two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, workers have faced enormous risks, including death, especially for those on the front lines. The pandemic has intensified working class anger, anger that has been building up after decades of stagnating wages, cuts to benefits and protections, and multiple economic crises that have fallen on the shoulders of everyday people. One fight that has placed renewed attention on the labor movement is the John Deere strike. We want better pay, and uh, the retirement for me is, is the biggest thing. I'm, I'm not 20 years old anymore, and I'm, so I'm, it really puts in perspective that, you know, I want to retire someday. That's Bill. He's a worker with John Deere in one of their Iowa factories. He's been working with the company for 15 years and asked us to use a different name for this podcast. For years now, CEO pays have, have been going through the roof. Ours have been pretty stagnant. And uh, a lot of us are living paycheck to paycheck because we spend 80, 90% of our wages every week on something. And we have daughters that are in college and it's, it's scary to think that what they're going to have to go through when they're older. So I'm, I'm willing to, to sit out as long as it takes until we receive fair wages. I'm just proud to be standing strong with my union brothers and sisters, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to sit out as long as it takes. Last week, while I was glued to election results rolling in from Virginia and New Jersey, my husband, right in the other room, was also reporting but on the John Deere union contract vote. On election night, John Deere workers, 10,000 of them, were voting on their second tentative agreement, as they call it, which is a union contract before it's been voted on by the membership. That's Jonah Furman, who also happens to be my husband. He's a staff writer with Labor Notes, and he's been closely reporting on many of these strikes. And in a shocker to John Deere, the company, and I think also to the UAW and to lots of uh, John Deere workers, the contract was for the second time in a row rejected by the membership by a 55% vote. Jonah and I talked about the John Deere strike, how it connects to the broader pattern of strikes we're seeing, and how it might affect national politics. Jonah began by telling me the history of the John Deere strike. They were on strike for something like 17 days before they got their second offer from the company. And then they had you know, three more days between that and and the vote. So on the three-week mark, essentially, you know, they voted to continue the strike, keep going, keep trying to extract more concessions from John Deere. 
And and what kind of concessions were they looking for? So the big picture on this strike has been about a few things. The first thing is the two-tier contract system at John Deere. Two-tier contracts are not totally uncommon in the union world, and they essentially mean workers who are hired after a certain date make different wages, have different benefits than workers who are hired before that date. It's been a way that companies have cut labor costs by offering a contract to existing workers that, you know, in some way sells out future employees who don't get a vote, obviously, on that contract because they don't work there yet. So at John Deere, this was one of the first of the UAW contracts to go seriously two-tier. In 1997, workers voted for a contract that would eliminate Healthcare benefits after retirement would cut the pension basically by two thirds, would lower wages and would lower healthcare benefits on the job for new workers. So John Deere workers have been working for, what, 24 years now under a two tier contract. And the big picture issue in this fight has been we want to end the two tier contract. John Deere is more profitable than it's ever been. People are second and third generation deer workers and remember that their parents used to make better money than they do today. They still enjoy post-retirement health care, full pensions. So the big picture was wanting to go back to a time when being a UAW member at John Deere meant a good job with a secure retirement. Added on top of that was the wage offer that John Deere came up with uh, at the end of September, beginning of October. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. They offered basically a 12% raise over six years. So if you add it up, it's about 2% a year at a time when the company is making more than they've ever made and wages at Deere for decades have stagnated. So we're looking at a contract where they'd be making what people were making at John Deere in the same dollar amount two decades ago, 1997. And the last thing I would say is what one of the other big motivating forces is not only did Deere want to maintain the two-tier system, but they actually wanted to introduce a new tier. And this was, you know, outrageous to members who had struggled under the two-tier post-97, pre-97 division. They wanted to eliminate pensions for all new hires, which, you know, some people referred to as a third tier or creating a post-21 deer worker, which members found to be totally unacceptable. And so they rejected the first offer, which had the three tiers from Deere, and United Auto Workers had sanctioned that vote, and workers rejected it anyway. And then in the second offer, they rejected that too. That got rid of the third tier, but now they just don't want any tiers. So what happens now? I mean, what they've been on strike for a little while. How are the families getting through this? Like, what, what do striking workers do when they're out of work for this long? And what are they now expecting from the union and the company? So almost none of the workers at Deere today have struck the company. The last strike there was in 1986, and it lasted for five months. It became a lockout, meaning, you know, the workers were ready to go back, and the company said, we don't want you back yet. Some of these workers walked that picket line with their parents, but no one has struck Deere in the 21st century, and none of these workers in their working life have been through this experience. So some of it is unknown. You know, some people are saying, 
maybe this is 86, 87 again, where maybe we're out for five months. Maybe deer tries to starve us out. Some people think it'll be a matter of weeks until there's a new deal. I mean, they rejected the first one. Less than three weeks later, they got a second deal. Maybe in three more weeks, they'll get a third deal. So there's a lot of difference of opinion of sort of what we can expect. John Deere came out with a statement saying that was our last best and final offer, which you know, is something that companies say in negotiations, which essentially means they don't intend to meaningfully uh, redo the deal. And some members think that means they're just going to get, you know, the same deal back to them in two weeks, two months, just have to vote on it again, and deer will roll the dice, hope they can get a majority. Some workers think that means they'll move a little bit of money around, but it'll be superficial. But it's, you know, it's a lot of speculation. So these, these members are bracing for a cold Iowa winter and and it's it's a serious situation. I will say, you know, I talked to one member who said, yeah, sure, they can starve us out, but he has 11 job offers this week. You know, it's a tight labor market. People want to hire people. And wages at Deer aren't so high. You know, you can go across town and make the same cash you were making at your John Deere job. You don't have the benefits. You don't have, you know, other things that come with a good union contract. But if it's a matter of just keeping food on the table, there's options for these workers, which means Deere has now less leverage, right? If you can't starve them out in two weeks or two months, it's not clear that if you just keep offering the same deal, will they ever accept it, you know? Um, So, you know, it's a stalemate now. And what's what is the impact that the workers are making on the company? I mean, part of the leverage that the workers have is that Deere is what what were their profits last year? Five point eight billion dollars. Five point eight billion dollars. And, you know, one image that you had mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago is that the workers can make in a day one of these like super tractors. Yeah. We're talking about something like 12 or 14 facilities are the main sort of hotbed of the strike. And they make a lot of different things, but we're not really talking about lawn equipment. We're talking about industrial tractors, harvesters, combines. One member I talked to for Labor Notes was telling me, you know, she's the shop steward on a line that makes tractors. They finish 30 of them in a shift and people are making, you know, 18 to $20 an hour. So you do the math and it's of course true at every company that the workers aren't making, you know, the full profits that the company is enjoying. But the gap here is just astounding. Since the pandemic started, Deere's stock price has more than doubled. Since John May, the CEO, uh, entered that position, he got a hundred and sixty percent pay raise. Any way you slice it, Deere stockholders got a seventeen percent dividend bump some months ago. So the financials are there for workers to make gains right now. And the fact is, that's not always the case. In the last contract, 2015, you know, it was all about cuts because it was not a great time for the company. Um, They had mass layoffs. It wasn't a great time to work at Deer. So people were willing to take a worse deal. Now it's almost the best Deer has ever been doing. I mean, it is financially the best Deer has ever been doing. And workers are aware of that. So They realize that right now you need to lock in whatever gains you're going to make. It's not going to be there's not going to be a time when there's more money on the table. John Deere has this euphemism called the customer service continuation plan, which is essentially their plan to break the strike. How you win a strike is you stop production for long enough that the company gets desperate and has to settle a better deal than they first gave you. How you win a strike as the company is you keep production going in some way that you can, you know, keep money flowing into the company. So when they rejected the second tentative agreement, 
The company said they were going into phase two of their plan to break the strike, which looks like it means bringing in replacement workers to some scale. Before that, their phase one was essentially saying, we're going to move our salaried workers who are not part of the union. We're going to move them to the factory floor, to the warehouse, and just keep as much going as we can. Reports from inside were there were accidents. They were working people for six days a week, 12-hour days. People were driving hours to different facilities across the state. What's interesting is some of them are like, yeah, I was in the union before, and then I went to the salaried side. Or my dad was in the union, so I've been on a factory floor before. But for the most part, some of them are might be engineers, so they know the machines. A lot of them are, I mean, there's people from IT who are now working in a warehouse looking for industrial parts for machines in John Deere's largest warehouse and trying to ship them to dealers. People have been speculating, you know, we better check the serial numbers for anything built in this time because my my dad's a farmer and I don't want him buying a combine that was built by an accountant. The other thing about the salaried workers, it's like these are not, for the most part, C-suite executives. These are people who last year went under basically a restructuring, which meant tons of layoffs and people being shifted into new jobs on the salary side that they never had before. People tell me that, you know, they haven't seen more than a 1% raise in the past 10 years. Different, different stats for different workers, but they share some serious sympathy with uh, the UAW strikers. And the longer the strike goes, the longer these workers are working in these difficult conditions and the worse the conditions get because they're trying to ramp up production. You know, it's it's one thing to have to work in a warehouse. It's another thing to have to work on an assembly line. And as Deere tries to survive the strike, tries to starve out the workers, they're going to s- send more salaried people who are less qualified to do more of this work. And what about the rest of the labor movement right now? I mean, this feels like such a focal point, but there's a couple of other fights that are happening that are worth mentioning. Kaiser's a really interesting example because I think there's a few ways that it really resonates here. One is the idea of the big strike. You know, the big strike could be back. Kaiser has seen more strikes than than John Deere has, but um, you know, Deere's out for the first time in whatever that is, 35 years. Kaiser, some of these unions who are involved in the Kaiser fight will be going out for the first time since the 1980s as well. So some of those unions involved haven't struck in decades. And so that's one way in which it's really similar is like you have these unions that have not flexed this muscle and they have decided that now is the time to do it. The other commonality in terms of sort of the meat and potatoes of the contract is that Kaiser's first offer was 1% a year for three years. So you're talking about, I mean, let alone the 5% that the deer workers rejected, but 1% a year for three years would not make up for the inflation of the past 12 months, let alone be anything like a raise that workers like these are looking for in a union right, contract. Right. It's like essentially a pay cut. It's, it's, it's a huge pay cut. I mean, it's not even, you know, you don't even, with 1% a year for three years, you don't even really have to do the persuasion of members that this is you're going to be losing money on this contract. And actually, Kaiser is scrambling to settle something, it looks like, and they, they changed their offer to now it's going to be, a uh, instead of 1% a year, it's going to be 2%, uh, which is just like, again, you sort of damning with faint praise. You know, you're like, this, this is part of the dynamic, too, is like you offer these workers this insult, and it changes the whole game. A lot of the workers at John Deere said, 
if we got the second offer as the first as the first offer from the company, we would have accepted it. It would have been acceptable to us. But because we were so insulted by the way that they thought they could buy us for cheap, we're not going to settle for some mediocre deal. So there's a lot of anger that's happening against employers. Oh, tons of anger. I mean, you know, if you want to look at it from the broader economic perspective, I think I'm quite persuaded by the idea that this is this is when the great resignation happens at union workplaces, right? You don't just quit. Although there is talk of that. I mean, John Deere workers are now saying, I'm just never going back, some of them. But for the most part, the function of the union is to say, we don't have to quit. We can change what this job means. But it's the same dynamic. You know, Alex Press likes to quote this worker she talked to, this EMT she talked to, who said to her, when you realize that your boss is willing to kill you, it changes things. So it's not just workers who are in unions. I mean, union density is quite low in in the country right now. I mean, the image that comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about the Great Resignation is those sharpied flyers <laughs> on like the Dollar General storefronts that are like, "Sorry, we don't we don't have enough staff today. Like mm-hmm. we're closed." Mm-hmm. So what are you seeing? in the broader labor market? Like, what is in workers' minds right now? Well, I think the undertold story of a tight labor market. So when we talk about a tight labor market, what we mean is you can go find another job and they can't find someone else to take your job. So the difference between having, you know, nobody coming to the company's job fair to fill in for you if you were to leave versus having a thousand people lined up the door, that's that is a measure of your leverage as a worker. The thing I don't think that people are talking about is like, look, if you worked through the pandemic, if you experienced a tight labor market from a job you stuck with, you also experienced serious understaffing and overwork. So not only are you working in a pandemic, but your conditions are getting worse and worse as time goes on. And the companies are making record profits and their stocks are soaring. Yeah. And this dynamic is not abstract for people who work at John Deere or work at Kellogg's or work at these companies. We are in an entirely different moment from, you know, the financial crisis of companies crying poverty and saying, you know, to stay afloat, you're going to have to tighten your belt, right? And this is the line they've used, which isn't true in austerity times, but is a joke in in the good times. You know, I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the labor movement's relationship to electoral politics, because a lot of Democrats support a $15 minimum wage. They support the PRO Act, which is legislation, some of which is going to be included in the Build Back Better Act to improve NLRB rules around the creation of unions and and grievances about unions. But on the other hand, it seems like the energy of the labor movement is at this point, pretty alienated from, you know, the Democratic Party. How do you see that? I mean, is that how you how you look at it? Or where do the workers that you're talking to fall in terms of their involvement with with national politics? Well, you know, the John Deere story is what I've covered most closely for Labor Notes. And I find it incredibly interesting that mostly where these workers live is eastern Iowa. And as people know of the so-called pivot counties, those that voted for Obama twice and then flipped to Trump and then were the subject of New York Times op-eds for you know, the past five years, that's where those workers vote. I mean, the, they are the pivot counties. A lot of them are the working class voters of eastern Iowa who 
flipped to Trump and the Democratic Party has wrung its hands about how to win them back. Now they're all on strike. And the question is, on a national level, where are the Democrats on this issue if you want to win these people back? And I don't know how to characterize the National Democratic Party's relationship to it except one of absence. You know, Tom Vilsack, the agriculture secretary, showed up to a picket line in Des Moines. That was a big deal. But, you know, he's the agriculture secretary and former governor of Iowa. Marty Walsh showed up to a picket line in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the first sitting labor secretary to walk a picket line, according to, you know, historians. So that's all great. But Joe Biden has essentially stayed vocally neutral on the on the whole thing, let alone anything sort of more innovative. Like we have this huge infrastructure bill that is the main headline. John Deere is going to make so much money off of this bill when it goes through. This is the bipartisan infrastructure yes. bill. Yes. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? What would you do if you were about to play, pay the employer of 10,000 striking workers millions of dollars in contracts and knock-on effects from a huge infusion of cash? The fact that the National Democratic Party is not only not showing up on the picket line as much as they easily could, but is not even thinking about it as sort of a core issue for them. You know, this is not part of the main part of their narrative. And if anything, you know, you can read quotes that that, uh, you know, anonymous White House officials have given to reporters. I saw one that said, you know, this is not a historic level of strike activity. That was their take on things because they don't want to play up anything about the supply chain or any issues with getting people back to work, which is not a pro-worker view of what's happening. So the crazy thing to me is if you're the Democratic Party and you're obsessed with Eastern Iowa working class voters who voted for Obama, then voted for Trump, I cannot think of a single better group, a moment to talk about, talk to, support, be seen as an ally to, be seen as a champion of the exact people you say you want to support. And it's an easy layup, right? I mean, it's just sitting there. Just say you stand with the UAW workers. Give a little lip service and do a little bit more and you will have allies among these workers. I realized that I asked about the labor movement's relationship to the Democratic Party, but I also wanted to get your thoughts on the labor movement and progressives. And you're in the labor movement. You're also a progressive person. You worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign, for instance. How do you see those two things mixing? I mean, like, what is the labor movement's role in the progressive movement? Does it have a role or how do you think it could be stronger? You know, you look at the labor movement across whatever the OECD countries or the most advanced capitalist countries in almost every case, there's a labor party that forms sometime in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it's essentially because you have these unions that fight for workplace rights and, you know, conditions and wages and things, the bread and butter stuff of being someone who works for a living. But there's inevitably things that go beyond your workplace, whether it's sort of social issues like you know, unemployment when you don't have a job, or if it's that your whole industry is facing something that your one employer can't fix across the board. So in every case, there's always a political expression of the union movement. And in every other country, you know, every other comparable country, there's been a political party that forms on that basis. They call them labor parties. In in the UK, it's called labor, literally. That's their large social democratic party. 
In this country, our Labour Party, insofar as it exists at all, is submerged somewhere inside of the Democratic Party. Basically, it's it's a junior partner, it's a pinky toe of, it's an appendage of. But the union movement doesn't have its own independent expression in the United States politically, which is really complicated because it means that the unions are in the same party that a lot of their bosses are. So they would be at different sides of the negotiating table for a union contract, but they're at the same side of the table negotiating national politics. So progressives, you know, exist somewhere in that party with them. They're often on the same, in the same wing, same corner of the Democratic Party, but often not. There's, you know, mismatches all the time. The way labor has acted politically has been to be a junior partner of the establishment of the Democrats, which means that often what their narrow short-term interest is, is to support what the party wants. So when we saw, for example, this is a great example, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, the largest union in the AFL-CIO Labor Federation, came out saying, let's pass the infrastructure bill before we get a deal on reconciliation. This was a break with progressives on the inside baseball of this stuff. And what was so strange about it is that she's the head of the American Federation of Teachers. Very little of what her membership wants from these congressional acts is in the infrastructure piece that she was supporting. It's much more in the reconciliation piece that she was arguably imperiling if you take the progressive strategy for it. And why would a teachers union president do that? Well, the best way to understand it is because She's trying to act as part of the Democratic Party, not as part of the Labor Party. So progressives are occasionally, frequently, sometimes at odds with, you know, the unions as political actors. And part of it is also that the unions have, in a lot of cases, have gotten so small or so not present uh, as parts of, you know, just the percentage of your constituency as a congressperson that's union is much smaller. So Democrats still rely on endorsements and dollars from unions. But in terms of being in touch with actual union members who put those concerns in a clear way outside of the sort of political apparatus of the tops of the labor movement, I don't think progressives hear that much from rank and file union members. I don't know how much the squad is in touch with rank and file John Deere workers. And that would have been true decades ago, that the progressive wing of the party is close to the UAW and close to the members of the UAW and in touch with those members as constituents of their district. Because the UAW has shrunk so much, because the union movement has shrunk so much, it's less of a part of the daily political life of the progressive wing of the party. So there's just a big disconnect here. I think everything I've seen from the progressive wing of the Democrats is you know, please, union members, come be involved. We want you to be our base. We wish you were our base. We wish our base was unionized. We'd love to make that happen. There's big structural issues that have kept that disconnect alive and how it expresses itself politically is, for the most part, their labor and the progressives are in the same minority faction of the Democratic Party, occasionally at odds, occasionally aligned, but neither of them are big enough to team up and overcome the corporate influence of the party, let alone, you know, defeat the GOP. And so you cover, at Labor Notes, you cover the UAW, the auto workers industry that's going through a massive reckoning at the moment. 
especially with the mandate to create electric vehicles. Um, And they have a referendum coming up. Can you talk about that? So the United Auto Workers have, for the past five years or so, been going through at the national level, the top levels of the union, what has been called the biggest corruption scandal in union history with something like a dozen top officials having been convicted for things like taking money from employers to uh, bargain worse contracts. This has all triggered the DOJ to step in and say, you all need a system to hold these top leaders accountable aside from us just convicting them. And following on the Teamsters example from the late 80s, they said the mechanism for this is to take a vote on whether to move to direct elections for top officers. The idea being that repeatedly for for eight decades in the UAW, a small clique has controlled who runs the union at a national level. And they're insulated through these mechanisms where members don't get to vote on the top leaders of the union. So you can bargain a bad contract, you can be found to be corrupt in some way, you can just not be responsive, and you never face a political consequence in the United Auto Workers. So right now, during the John Deere strike, UAW United Auto Workers union members are voting on whether to switch to direct elections for top officers. At the same time, the Teamsters have their own internal election that, like I said, direct elections in the Teamsters was an advent of an anti-corruption intervention in the late 80s. They, too, are facing this question of, are we going to change as a union after 23 years of the same leadership? There's now people running for the top spots of the Teamsters Union saying, we're open to striking UPS in 2023. It would be the biggest strike of my lifetime. Um, I think it's part of a broader pattern, just like we talk about you know, movements in the Democratic Party and in the GOP to shake up the status quo, like we talk about Occupy social movements like Black Lives Matter that are challenging the social and political status quo in this country. That stuff doesn't end at the workplace door or at the door of the union hall. And these movements, not, you know, it's not always in the same name or same shape. It's not people always wearing Bernie shirts or Trump shirts. But this idea that the status quo has to change is alive in the unions. And this is a lot of what we cover at Labor Notes. So the question is, Will this sort of anti-establishment feeling that we've seen in the country for the past five, 10 years make its way deep enough into the labor movement to turn around this ship that is has been sinking for 40 years? And how do you think that the labor movement and politics in the U.S. would change if there were more democratic unions? I think when you let union members run their own unions from the bottom to top, um, Democracy yeah, is, democracy. Unpredict- yes. is unpredictable. Yes. Yeah. yes. It's like, huh, when people vote, things happen that wouldn't have happened if the people who run the world now had decided what should be next. So when the Teamsters first got direct elections in the late 80s, they instantly elected a reformer to the top leadership and instantly led to two huge things. One, that was the basis of the new leadership of the AFL-CIO in 1995 that changed the federation, and the UPS strike in 1997 that was the biggest strike of our lifetimes. When you allow members to control the top slots in their unions, you tend to see things like concessions going in the other direction. When you have accountability for people who negotiate bad contracts, you tend to get better contracts. When you have accountability for people who won't take members out on strike even when they want to go on strike, you tend to see more strikes. So, of course, we don't know what direction it would go, but 
something is broken in the labor movement. There's a problem of not being able to organize new members. There's a problem of not being able to win more at the bargaining table. There's a problem of not being able to engage the membership you have. Democracy is one huge antidote to a lot of those bad trends we've seen in the labor movement for decades. Jonah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. John Deere told us that they were proud of the offer they gave the UAW and said they look forward to continuing discussions with the union. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Zach Young collected the audio at the Healthcare Workers Rally. True Quinn helped produce this episode. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Will Stanton makes our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. And I'm Nausicaa Runner. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.